Well, good morning. My name is Michael. Uh, I do work across the, uh, down the street a bit at the college as a new professor, and I'm very excited to be with you this morning. Uh, this is a little bit of a homecoming for my wife, Beth, and I. She, when she was younger, uh, grew up here for a few years in Joplin, attended CCO. And when I was uh, a student at the college, I interned here for a couple of years. So it's been fun uh, to be back. It's a pleasure to be with you, sharing some thoughts from a book that I love uh, very much. My task this morning is to introduce us to the book of Colossians and to teach through the first 14 verses. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up because you're going to need them. Uh, to the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to give you one, I'm sure. I don't know if that's the policy, but it will be today. So stop by on the way out, and we'll make sure that we put one in your hands. Um, If you don't have one with you, uh, you can also, of course, follow along up on the screens. We're going to just read through this text to get ourselves oriented this morning and kind of get a feel for what it is we're going to talk about. As Mark said, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of early Christians in a place called Colossae. So let's see what Paul says as he starts his letter off. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard about it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's a beautiful passage of scripture, it's what we're going to be unpacking this morning. But first, I do want to say welcome. Uh, Whether you've been here for a long time, maybe decades in some of your cases, or whether like my family and I have joined a CCO in the last year or so, or maybe this is your first time in church in 20 years and you thought that when you walked into the room, the ceiling was going to collapse. Well, it didn't. So congratulations on getting past round one. Uh, Wherever you are, whoever you are, wherever you are in your journey with the Lord, we're delighted that you're here together with us. And let me also say, since... um, since the weather, of course, you know, killed our Sunday last week together, killed our weekend service. It never happens in California, where Beth and I have been for the last eight years. But since we missed out on last week, this is our first gathering of the new year. And so let me go ahead and say Happy New Year. Anybody in the room make any resolutions? No, two of you. Wonderful. Well, well done, the two of you that did a handful more. I know some of us have probably gotten cynical about something like New Year's resolutions, but I always love, more than making my own, I love reading other people's. And I especially love to see how people's resolutions change over the years. You know what I mean? I remember I saw, saw recently there was a lady who had made some resolutions. A lot of times we make resolutions about our, you know, our health and our exercise and weight and those sorts of things. So back in 2011, she started this and she decided, you know what? Here's my resolution for 2011. I'm going to get my weight under 180. Uh, 2012, it was I'm going to count calories until I get below 190. 2000. 
2013 was, I'm going to cut out all carbs until I get below 200. And this year, 2014, her resolution was uh, to develop a realistic attitude about her weight. <laughs> I saw one from a couple, a husband and a wife, who were, again, again, a lot of resolutions about money, right, finances. And so they decided back in 2010, we will not spend our money frivolously. And in 2011, we will pay off our, our, our bank loan promptly. Uh, in 2012, we will pay off our bank loans promptly. 2014, we'll pay off our debt interest by the end of the year. And now in 2014, this year, it's we'll be out of the country by January of next year. Uh, but my favorite was actually from a guy. Uh, this started just a couple of years ago. 2012, his resolution was, I will ask Allison to marry me. Uh, 2013, I will convince Allison to say yes. And this year in 2014, I will ask Jessica to marry me. <laughs> I love, I love this time of year. I love the new year because I love the opportunity that it gives us to look at our lives and to ask, how are we doing? Are we living the way we want to live? Are we doing and being all that we feel we've been created to do and be? How did we do last year? How are we going to do this year, next year? Who are we? Where are we? How are things going? And I can't think of a better way. I seriously cannot think of a better way for us to kick off the new year, for us to kick off 2014 than by studying the book of Colossians. I am convinced that this book, of all the books in the Bible, this is the most important one for our time right now. I believe that. The Colossian Christians were a group of people who, who wanted more. And most of us know what that's like. So there was this new teaching alive in Colossae, and it wasn't that it was rejecting Jesus, but it was sort of pushing him to the side of it. It wasn't that we're going to walk away from Jesus. The logic didn't go, hey, reject Jesus. The logic was something more like, Jesus is, is nice, but he's not enough. Jesus is great and all. I mean, he's wonderful, but we need a little something more. Jesus is just a first step in this process of living a full life. And the Colossian Christians were starting to believe this. In a word, the Colossians were restless. And if I were asked to characterize our era in one word, I'd be hard-pressed to find one that fit better than restless. Everywhere you look, you see evidence of the fact that we are, in every sense of the term, restless. I mean, for starters, let's just take the word literally. Anyone in the room tired? I'd venture a guess that the answer to that is yes. I can remember a time not too long ago when I thought, I'm going to look back on the last 10 years of my life, and all I'm going to be able to remember is that I was tired. You ever been there? I'd be willing to wager that some of you have been there or are there right now. You know, experts tell us that in order for uh, full functioning, in order for optimal functioning as human beings, we need about seven to nine hours of sleep per night. So somewhere in that range, an average is what we require to live healthy, full, us at our best kind of lives. And uh, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention has been telling us for years that about 40 million American workers sleep an average of six hours or less per night. And the new moms in the room are like, oh, I remember six hours. <laughs> it's kind of a dream. We're tired. We, we go to work tired. We drive tired too. The National Department of Transportation has also been telling us again that you need to sleep more. They've reported that there's an average of over 1,500 fatalities, car accidents, because of drowsy driving and over 40,000 non-fatal injuries. We are so literally restless that we are a danger to ourselves and to others. But what are we supposed to do, right? I mean, life is moving fast and we got to keep up. 
We're restless in another sense of the word too, in the normal sense of the word of we can't sit still, we want more. We need a little bit more money or more security or more children or more accolades. I don't know what your particular brand of more is, but I know you probably have one. I know some of us like to think that we, we don't fit into this category of those who pursue more. We're the content ones, and yet we all still find ourselves playing the if-only game. If only I had a little bit better jobs so that I enjoyed my life more, so that I made a little bit more money so that I could buy a safer car or a bigger house for the family. If only I had more children or someone else's children. If only I were married. If only I were single. You know, we play the if only. For me, it's if only I had a few more dollars in the bank account so nobody has to worry. If only I could learn a little bit more so that I could master my craft and be an expert in the field. If only I could create enough positive experiences for my children so that when they get older, they don't walk away from me or from the Lord. We play the if only game. And Paul's answer, Paul's answer is not be completely satisfied with what you have. No, no, that's not what Paul says. Paul says pursue more of the right thing. Paul says what you need is not more than Jesus. What you need is more of Jesus. Paul's answer to our restlessness is to focus us intently and intensely on the truth and the power and the glory and the greatness and the wisdom that are found in Jesus. That's what you're going to see throughout this whole book. That's why I think this book is the most important one in the Bible for our time right now. I challenge you sometime during this series, open up your Bible to Colossians and read through it and underline every time you see Jesus or Christ or he or him in reference to Jesus. You're going to have a lot of ink on the pages because this book bleeds Jesus. What we always need most is a clear vision of Jesus. And Paul's going to give it to us. But he doesn't start there. He doesn't begin by just sort of presenting the truth about Jesus. He knows that when you're in a mindset where you feel like you maybe need something more, when you hear the truth about Jesus, it tends to just sort of go in one ear and out the other. I've heard this before. I understand what you're offering, but I need something else in addition to this. Paul knows that that's going to happen, so he actually has a little bit of a different tactic. Paul's strategy is not to begin with this vision of you. He'll get there very soon, but he actually begins somewhere else. In the past, in our past, actually, he begins by calling us to remember. That's what's going on in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul says, remember. Memory is such a valuable and fragile thing, isn't it? I mean, think about this with our kids. And so many people have told us, hey, remember the moments because that's going to come quickly. You're going to wake up and they're going to be gone. But thank you for telling us that because we've tried to do that. I have a son named Carson, and he's just about nine months old, and he's kind of in that process where he's learning how to crawl. And there's like stages to this process, right? There's the like beached whale stage is where you start, where you put them on the belly and they're just laying there. And then there's the up on the, you know, push up a little bit where they can get a little bit of air in between their belly and the ground, and it typically goes from there into face plant stage. Well, there's this, I don't know if you remember this, but there's, I don't know how long it's been for you, but there's this stage right before they crawl when they like scoot backwards, you know what I'm talking about? So the other day, Beth, my wife, texted me a picture of Carson in this living room. There's the carpet in the middle and his little toys right there. And he's all the way across the room in the back looking up because he's scooted backwards. I want to remember that image because it's going to go away. I want to remember, my, I have a daughter who's three and a half years old. And she says some of the most hilarious things. She said to me the other day, she always likes to kind of define what's going on in the room. And so she said, Daddy, I'm a girl. And I said, yes, you are, babe. She said, and you're a boy. And I said, yes, I am. She said, but you look like a girl. <laughs> yeah, I have more, but I'll just leave it at that one. And so she says these, she also says the sweetest things. And I, I want to remember, somebody told me one time, you better be writing these down because you're going to forget. I want to remember, 
I want to remember how every day at some point she'll say, guess what, daddy? And I'll say, what, babe? And she'll say, I love you. I want to remember the time when we had friends over to our house and she introduced herself by saying, my name is Claire and my daddy loves me. I want to remember that. And I want her to remember that when she's 14, 15, 16, 26, 36, 46, the rest of her life. You know what I mean? Memory is such a valuable and fragile thing. It's true with life in general. You know, it's funny, the the part of our, not funny, it's interesting, the part of our brain that stores our memory is called the hippocampus. I'm not sure if you've heard this before, but it's this peanut-shaped part of our brain, and that's where we lock in experiences from our past and kind of hang on to those. What's fascinating is that the hippocampus, our memory reserve, is also the part of our brain that governs navigation. Isn't that interesting? I mean, who hasn't had that experience when you're going somewhere where you've been multiple times and you remember leaving the house and you remember getting there, but you have, you, when you arrive, you kind of realize, I haven't had a conscious thought about where I was going since I got in my car. You ever had that before? That's the hippocampus at work. And what's true on the road is true on the street, if you know what I mean. What's true of driving is true of life in general. Our memories root us. Our memories help us tell us where to go. We cannot get where we should be going without remembering. And so Paul says in this passage, remember. And specifically, he points our memory in two directions. Now, the structure of this text is a little funny because Paul's kind of following normal letter conventions. He kind of talks about one thing on both sides, front and back, and then another thing right in the middle. So we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit, and we're going to start with a few verses in the middle, and then we're going to look at what he says on either side of uh, those few verses in the middle. We're first going to look at verses 9 through 12 of chapter 1, and we're going to see that Paul's point here is, remember what you signed up for. Remember what you signed up for. Let me read those to you, and then we'll talk about what they're saying. Colossians 1, 9 through 12, Paul says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. So look at, looking at this, we can see that Paul is describing the Christian life in some pretty desirable ways. So let's break down what it is he says, and then we'll talk about what he's doing with what he says. First, notice that he throws out these words like knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Paul sometimes likes to talk fancy, you know what I mean? Like we'd walk into a room and we'd be like, man, it smells good in here. Paul would walk in a room and he'd be like, this aroma is pleasing to my olfactory senses, you know? So it's just the way he talks. So give him a break, right? He's being fancy. But what he's doing is he's saying knowledge, wisdom, understanding, discernment, competence. If I could just summarize what he's saying there in those verses, he's saying you can know God. That's what I'm praying for you. That you will know God personally. That you'll be the kind of person who engages God in a friendship. That you'll be the kind of person who uh, knows what God wants. That's knowledge. And does it. That's wisdom. That's what Paul says he wants for us. So first thing he's talking about is this idea of knowing God intimately and accurately. Having thoughts about God that line up with God's thoughts about himself. Knowing the truth of who he is. And experiencing those truths in a tangible way on a daily basis. He goes from there to talk about a life that is worthy of God or pleasing to God. He's saying, you know, God's going to look down on your life and he's going to smile. He's going to look at you and he's going to say, not just, man, I love him because I love him. You know, God love him. (laughs) It's me. He's going to say, 
I'm, I'm, I'm proud of them. What they do makes me smile. He then says that, he talks about strength and power of his glorious might. Again, there's this elevated speech, but what I love about it, it's just not just sort of vague. It's not just you'll have the strength of God inside you. He says you'll have strength and power of his glorious might so that you can be enduring and patient. In other words, when you wanna give up and when people are getting on your nerves, like that's when the strength and might of God are gonna kick in. You're gonna be the kind of person who can love others, who can stay the course even when things get difficult. So Paul is describing this life and he caps it off by talking about gratitude and joy. Joyfully giving thanks to God the Father. He says, that's what I pray for for you. So that's Paul's sort of quick picture, just kind of throwing some strokes up on a canvas of what the Christian life is. But let's talk about what he's doing with that. Well, it's just an interesting few verses for me because Paul is simultaneously talking about the future and the past. He's praying for them, that God would do this in them. So he's saying, if you stay the course, this is where you're headed. But he's talking about it in terms of the past. This is what you signed up for. So think about where you're going and where you wanted to go when you initially said yes to Jesus. I know you think you need more. I know you're playing the if only game, he says, but remember what you signed up for. This is like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Some of you may have had children or have children who are kind of early 20s. You know, they go to college and they commit themselves to a career path. And then maybe like midway through college or about three years into this process, they're coming home and they're just going, I'm, I'm done. I'm toast. Or maybe they got a job and they wanted to sort of work their way up to a certain point, but they're frustrated with how long it's taken. So they come home and they say, I, I just think I'm just going to quit and do something else. What do you do to them then? You say, no, 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 don't quit. Remember why you got into this in the first place. Keep your eye on the goal. Keep your eye out ahead of you. Fight through. I don't care if you have one or two more years of, of books. You can do this. And you may think that the piece of paper doesn't matter now. And sure, it doesn't. But at the end of the day, the experience you're going to gain does. Stay the course. Stay put. Don't give up. Man, I can remember doing this with friends of mine in their marriages. You guys ever experienced this? Or ladies too? For me, it's been my guy friends, of course, who come to me and say, I just don't know if I want to make this work. I think I might be leaving. And I want to say, no, remember why you got into this in the first place. Remember the dream that you signed up for. Remember the life that you wanted to create together with this person. And Paul says, Man, don't forget about the light at the end of this tunnel, the friendship with God, the depth of character and wisdom, the joy of knowing that you are living the life you were made for. I mean, do you not still want to be the kind of person who confidently knows what God wants and who does it? Do you not still desire to put your head on your pillow at the end of the day and know that God is happy with you? Is it not still appealing to you to think about being patient enough to not flip out at your kids when they're annoying or your coworkers when they're not being good coworkers? Or is it not still appealing for you to be grateful, to have this constant sense of gratitude in your mind and in your heart because you know what God has given you so that hard times don't get you down? I mean, did you honestly think that these things were going to come easy? That there would be no lulls, that there would be no struggle, that there would be no valleys, that there would be no seasons when you thought it would just be easier to walk away or even easier to supplement Jesus with a little bit of this and a little bit of that? 
Now, I'm sorry if you were misled, but this was always going to be hard. This was always a marathon, never a sprint, which is why it's so important for us to keep our eyes focused on the finish line, to keep our gaze fixed on who Jesus is and why we said yes to him in the first place and where he is taking us, even if it takes a while to get there. Paul says, remember what you signed up for. And then the second thing Paul says is, remember what you've already seen God do. I mean, it's not like nothing's been happening. Look around, he says. This is the first eight verses of this text, and then a few more at the end. Open up your Bible to the first eight verses, and I just want to point out a couple of key words there that Paul uses in talking about this. Paul says, first of all, have you forgotten what God's already done? Have you forgotten the transformation in you? Notice what he calls them. You are the holy people in Colossae. Now, that doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that you aren't who you were before. It means that you're different. It means that you recognize that you have a special calling on your life. That's you. You may not be perfect. My guess is that you're not. But you are people who are holy. You're not who you were before. You recognize that you exist for a different purpose than you did. That's still true of every single person in here. That's still true of you. You are set apart. Let's look at what he says next. He says, uh, he talks about how he has heard reports of their faith. Circle that word. And hope. Circle that word. And love. Paul loves that trio right there, faith, hope, and love. He says, listen, these are the things that I've seen in you. You trust God more than you did before. You have a, a hope that enables you to endure difficult times. You no longer despair, but you actually look to the future and let the future define the present. You are loving. You are selfless. Paul says, look at these things and notice how you've grown. And he not only says it to them, but he says it to us as well. And if you've not, it's certainly not Jesus' fault, right? But the fact is, for most of us, we have. We could fill in the blanks. I was this, but now I'm this. I was an egotistical, self-centered brat, but now I'm a person who is learning to be selfless. I was addicted to a substance or a person or a particular fill, but now I rely on the Holy Spirit to meet my deepest needs. You fill in the blank for yourself. Have you forgotten the transformation? And Paul, I love this part. He says, even if it's not you, even if you can't look at your own life and detect something significant. Notice what Paul throws in here, there in the end of this section in verse seven. He says, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. Now, Epaphras was actually the person who planted this church in Colossae. Paul didn't do it. Paul didn't know these people real well. Epaphras did. And what I find fascinating about this is his name. Epaphras, of course, is short in that world for Epaphroditus, which means that he was named after Aphrodite, who was a goddess of not such pure things. This was not a young boy who was raised to love the Lord, if you know what I mean. And yet here he is planting a church. Paul's reminding them, even if you haven't seen the transformation in you, look around because you've seen it in somebody else. Remember that kid who, you know all his dirty secrets, and then you saw him leave and come back different. And he's the one who introduced to you to our Savior. Paul never lost sight of the transforming power of the gospel because Paul remembered how the gospel had changed his own story and the stories of so many of his friends. Have you forgotten the transformation, he says. And then secondly, he says, have you forgotten the impact? See, it's not just about what God's doing in you. It's about what he's doing through you and beyond you. Paul says to the Colossians, we've heard about the things that are happening in you. We've heard about your love and your faith, the hope stored up for you in heaven, this true gospel that you've believed, which is bearing fruit not only in you, but also in the whole world. Have you forgotten the impact? 
And I can tell you right now, as a just brand new insider, it is exciting to be a part of this church. I'm not sure if you're aware of the things that God has done through Christ Church for Onogo. So let me remind you, since 2009, we have had 815 baptisms through the ministries of this church. 815 people have surrendered their life to Jesus. That's awesome. That's a lot of people who are gonna be in heaven because of the ministry of this church. In the past two years, we've had over 350 students attend various CIY events. These events change lives and change the world. 350 students go to an event in the summer or sometime during the year where they worship and where they learn and where they serve. We've had a significant number of persons find hope and healing and mercy through our ministries like Redemption Recovery, Healing Hearts, Grief Share, and Divorce Care. We've uh, had our faith and finance classes provide free financial literacy classes to low-income families in the community. Our friendship family program, we've matched up international students who come to America to study with families in the local church so that they can not only be cared for, but so they can hear the gospel and perhaps take it home to their communities, to their home countries. Since 2010, for the Right Here, Right Now Ministries, you have given over $850,000. That's to meet immediate needs in our community as they come up during that actual week so that we might take care of people in Jesus' name and share the hope that we have found in him. We've partnered together with our orphan care ministry, not only to provide support for families in the area that have already adopted children, but also to help others begin the process of walking through that detailed, sometimes painful, very expensive journey of providing a home for a child who doesn't have a mommy and a daddy. We've walked alongside Bright Futures in collecting food and other resources for the backpack programs that give food to kids so that they don't have to go come back to school on Monday not having eaten since Friday. Through our poverty alleviation ministry, we've walked people stuck in the cycle of poverty and helped them realize who God created them to be. And just in case you forgot the number, let me say one more time, over 800 people have walked across this stage or have come to a ministry that we have supported and have handed their life over to Jesus. I understand. I'm not like, I, this is this what's great about me doing it. I, I didn't have anything to do with any of that, so I'm not bragging. <laughs> I'm just saying it's awesome to be part of this. And, and I know this is the early service, so y'all are the ones who are already serving, so I probably don't need to say this, but if anybody in the room is looking at that and saying, I mean, I don't know if I want to be a part of this. Really? If you don't, like now's the time, right? Like if you haven't followed Jesus, if you haven't said like, I want to be a person who surrenders my life to Jesus, I don't know why you'd wait another day. If you've not said, I want to be a part of this faith community, I don't know why you'd stop. Like, make a decision today to join the church or to get involved. If you've not been serving for a while, now's the time to jump back in. And again, this is not about us. This is not about, look what we've done. This is about, goodness, we're just some messed up people in the corner of the world that not many people know about. And look what God has done through us. Why in the world would we think about walking away from Jesus, the one who inspires and empowers such impact? Have you forgotten the impact? And lastly, Paul says, have you forgotten forgiveness? If there is a list of words whose meaning we are prone to forget, I would imagine that forgiveness is pretty near the top of the list. How easy is it for us to forget that not a single one of us deserves to be here? There's a young man named Kevin who was about 15 years old, and he was a rough kid, and everybody knew it. He was, uh, parents were out of the picture, not sure where they were, raised by his grandma. She did the best she could, but she struggled to keep much of a rein on him. Everybody in the neighborhood knew Kevin because he was the one who always took his grandma's car, even though he wasn't even old enough to drive, and flew down the street. And they all feared the worst might happen someday. 
There was another person who lived in this neighborhood, a man named Rick, and Rick had a son named Jimmy, and little Jimmy liked to play in the front yard, and one day Jimmy was playing with his ball, and the ball rolled out in the street, and Kevin was flying down, not paying any attention. He was a minor, but he did get sent to jail for a couple of years. And after about a month in prison, he uh, was knocked on, the officer knocked on his cell, said, you have a visitor. It was visiting day, and he knew this because other uh, inmates would often go and talk to different people, but he had never had one, and he didn't necessarily expect to, so he was a bit surprised. He was even more surprised when he walked around the, the corner. don't know if you've ever visited a friend or a family member in prison, but you sit in sort of like this booth-type thing, and there's wood walls on both sides just enough to guard you from the person next to you so they can have a private conversation, sort of, and you just look through a piece of glass, and you both have a phone, and you talk. And he, Kevin rounded the corner to sit down in the chair, and he was pretty shocked when he saw Rick sitting across the glass. He sat down, and he looked at him, and Rick just stared. He had about half an hour for the meeting. 20 minutes, he didn't do a thing, just stared at him. 25 minutes, and he finally picks up the phone. Rick does, so Kevin does too. And Rick just says, Kevin, I forgive you. And he hangs up the phone, and he leaves. He figures that's the last he'll see of him, but it's not. He actually came every two weeks for the duration of his time in prison. He did eventually say more words than just, I forgive you. He got to know him, his story. He learned to love him. And two years later, when Kevin got out of prison, Rick approached him and said, I'd like to come over to my house for dinner. Now, Kevin was scared because it's one thing when you're across the glass from the person who's responsible for the death of your son. It's another thing when he is at your home, at your table, with no one to stop you from jumping across. He was nervous, but he felt like he knew Rick well enough, so he came. He showed up for dinner. He sat down at the table. And as soon as he sat down, Rick slid a piece of paper across the table. And Kevin's eyes got bigger than they'd ever been. It was an adoption certificate. And Rick said to him, you could never repay me for what you did. So please don't try. But uh, you owe me a son. And so if you would accept my invitation, I would like to become your father. That is a love that I will never understand. And it is a love for which I am eternally grateful. And it is a love that has been offered to me and to you. Let me summarize forgiveness as simply as I can. Without Jesus, the dark parts of your story, the dark parts of your past will eventually ruin your future. With Jesus, they don't have to. Uh, You're not gonna find that anywhere else. So, so stop looking. I want to give you a tangible step today uh, so that you know what to do with this. Remember, okay, how do I remember? Here's what I want you to do from here on out for the rest of your life. Simple, I promise. Each week almost when we come to church here, we get to see people who are baptized. Either you're actually being baptized in that baptistry or up on the screen. Here's what I want you to do. Every time you see a baptism, I want you to pray a very simple prayer for that person. God, help them Remember. Help them remember this moment. Help them remember what they've come to know, what they've come to see, what they've come to feel. Help them never forget. And I also want you to pray a second very simple prayer. God, help me remember. Help me remember what I signed up for, why I got into this in the first place, where you're taking me, and help me to remember what I have already seen you do. Never forget that in your perfectly legitimate quest for something more, you do not need something else. All you need is more of what is found and what you already have. All you need is more Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, our hearts are as open as we can have them be. And so we pray that you would open them a bit wider. Our desires are as uh, deeply connected to you as is possible for us, so we pray that you would deepen them a bit more. We either want you or we want to want you. And either way, God, we pray that you would strengthen that want and fill it with just enough of you to keep us moving further. We ask God for your presence in the room in our lives, and we pray that you would help us to take, not to take you with us, but to go with you from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.